Hey, it's Aaron. Uh, this week, we have interviews with winners of this year's George Polk Award for Journalism. It's something we've been doing for the last few years at Longform Podcast. This interview is with Nick Baker and Tracy Wong from Coindesk. Uh, along with uh, the reporter Ian Allison, they wrote about the exchange FTX. Uh, maybe a little backstory is helpful here. Uh, a balance sheet for Alameda Research, which was the hedge fund within FTX, was leaked to Coindesk. Their reporting set in motion a huge domino roll that uh, resulted in uh, Sam Bankman-Fried being charged with a bunch of crimes. Uh, so here they are, uh, Nick Baker and Tracy Wong from Coindesk. Very uh, nice to uh, have you on the Long Form Podcast, Tracy Wong and Nick Baker of Coindesk. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having us. So I was excited to do this interview because it's a topic that uh, I feel like it ranks as my personal number one news story of the year, uh, which was the implosion of the uh, crypto exchange FTX last year. Maybe you could take me briefly through where this story started for both of you. Sure. Um, so this was, I think, the first week of November. And our colleague Ian Allison, who is a superstar reporter, was able to source a copy of Alameda's balance sheet. And Alameda is this hedge fund entity that was very closely related to FTX, the exchange. And we ended up writing a story that was pretty innocuous at first. Basically, you know, once we got the balance sheet, we were you know, able to verify that it was authentic. And then we took a look at all of the holdings on this balance sheet. and what kind of stood out was just the amount of FTT token, which is this token issued by FTX the exchange, and seemed pretty suspect because in traditional financial markets, when you have an exchange, think like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, it's, I think, illegal in, in the US to have a trading firm <laughs> also trade on your exchange. And this was kind of the relationship between FTX and Alameda. And so we ended up writing this like very innocuous story at first, just, you know, why is there so much FTT on Alameda's balance sheet? And that kind of, you know, started this string of events that ultimately led to like the collapse of FTX and, and bankruptcy. At what point in your reporting did you kind of go, oh, wow, this is this one's different. This is going to have bigger repercussions. This isn't just sort of run of the mill crypto drama. I feel like, you know, so worked with Ian on that initial story and, you know, you realize that that's important. It's an important revelation that this this trading firm is mostly made up of this token issued by FTX. That's significant because it's kind of an incestuous, strange relationship. And also, it's just not a great thing to have a single asset that's very related to the sentiment around your company be the bulk of your balance sheet. That's not great. That's what the story basically was about. And we knew that was an important revelation, right? You have to be careful, though, to not you know, go beyond what you know. We didn't know exactly how all that FTT got there. But we realized that that was an important thing to, for the world to know about, right? To raise that question of why in the world is all this FTT sitting on the Alameda balance sheet? 
then figured it would resonate. You know, it, it was not immediately obvious to us that it would cause the company to be a bankruptcy in nine days. However, I should be very clear about that. Knew it was important, but that's that doesn't happen. You don't generally publish stories that cause a, a company that was valued at $32 billion a few months previous to land in bankruptcy court in nine days. I would also add that what was really significant about just having that snapshot of Alameda's balance sheet was there were several other interesting line items, such as, you know, all of these tokens that Sam Bankman-Fried had created himself were worth, you know, billions on the balance sheet. And also they had quite a large loan balance. So this in November, this was already after several big collapses in, in crypto that year. And people had this kind of paranoia around lending. So basically, a lot of these lenders like Celsius, Voyager, uh, had customers that defaulted. And Alameda was kind of a net borrower from these lending platforms. And to see that huge loan number, I think it was around seven to $8 billion in loans. You know, reading between the lines, people assumed that their loans were collateralized by this FTT token, which was kind of a token that Sam had conjured out of thin air. And so that led to kind of more panic and, and you know, got people in crypto more worried. And what I think makes this FTX story way more interesting than just another financial fraud is just it has this like soap opera element to it. You know, there was the billions of dollars in customer deposits that were stolen, but also, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried himself was this eccentric figure and FTX had bought, you know, they had a Super Bowl commercial and Tom Brady and all of these characters. And one of the most interesting parts of FTX is just how Sam Bankman-Fried ran his company. And that was not obvious at the beginning, you know, like, People just thought, wow, you know, what happened with this exchange? But then as the details came out, it was pretty obvious that these were just a bunch of kids in the Bahamas. And I wrote a story about how he lived with his nine roommates in this penthouse, this $40 million penthouse in this luxury gated community in the Bahamas, where he ran this exchange. And all of, you know, his co-founder, the CTO, the CEO of Alameda, they were all of his housemates. And then all of the housemates kind of were like coupled off in these romantic relationships. And he had previously dated the CEO of Alavita Research, Caroline Ellison. And it became increasingly clear after talking to people like exactly how this company was being run. And I think that just adds this, you know, whole new New York Post style angle to the entire story, which which I guess we'll see play out on the big screen. I know there's a lot of, you know, shows and movies in the works about FTX. So when you got this alleged uh, balance sheet of Alameda's, well, I, I guess I've always wanted to ask this question. I've got you here now. Is it publicly known where that balance sheet came from and how it ended up with Coindesk? It's not something we've we talk about now. Okay, I mean, it's it's it. We we received it right, and but then you have to you have to figure out is it authentic, right? Is it some faked document, right? And so part of the reporting process is well, can you triangulate? Can you get multiple copies of it? Can you get people to sign off on the numbers? And you know, I guess you can't go too far down the rabbit hole, but yes, we had multiple people confirming that these were this was authentic. And is that something that's like commonplace in your reporting process? that you are able to like get the inner finances of crypto projects, or is this sort of like an unusual occurrence to get access to something like this? You know, I think 
there is definitely leaking of confidential information. I get, you know, <laughs> performance reports, like how much a fund is up or down. And it's like, you know, these things are supposed to be for uh, like they, they shouldn't really fall in the hands of journalists. But I, I do think in, in financial reporting, that is really the gold standard. Like you want a document rather than just uh, somebody whispering something to you that way you can see it but like nick mentioned we we did go to great lengths to make sure that the balance sheet was authentic and how did the stakes sort of change when you realized that the reporting that was happening in coindesk was actually causing various market things to happen downstream of it well, the story came out on a Wednesday, and um, it was Sunday morning. I, I I made the mistake of of looking at Twitter on Sunday morning. Always a mistake. Always a mistake. No, twenty four seven is a mistake, probably. But in particular, um, that morning I looked at and and CZ, the the CEO of Binance, he tweeted that he was going to sell his his tokens, his FTT tokens, and that's that's when I knew. Oh, oh wow. Oh, expletive. Something big is occurring now. So we we dove into that and covered that. But that's when it became clear that. The situation was amping up. So I'm curious uh, for both of you how you ended up at CoinDesk doing this kind of reporting. I'll ask you first, Tracy. Like, how, how did you end up here, and what have your experiences in, in crypto reporting been like? So I came from um, a pretty untraditional background. But I feel like all journalists say that. <laughs> I used to work at a asset management firm. So I was like basically an investor at this, you know, family office asset management firm. I did not do any journalism in college. So I came from like a traditional finance background or crypto people like to call us TradFi. <laughs> um, and so I kind of did two like little career pivots first from investing to journalism. And that was kind of a, a giant leap of faith. I had no idea if it was going to work out, but I thought journalism would be fun. And then I was covering hedge funds before coming to Coindesk. And I, I basically noticed this was around like maybe pandemic during the pandemic. And, and that was also when crypto started, you know, taking off and getting into this new bull run. And I noticed that all of the most like interesting hedge funds were doing stuff in crypto. Mm. And, you know, a lot of what was happening in crypto, I thought, this is where all the action is. You know, crypto had been kind of a backwater of, of, of reporting. It was kind of like, oh, gosh, this is, you know, nobody took it seriously. People didn't know if it was like a, a joke. And they thought it was all like drug dealers and fraudsters. And I was kind of thinking, well, like, that seems like a great place to, to be reporting on, on all these fraudsters. So I... I really love crypto as a beat. I think it is the greatest beat ever to cover. And I do think that as a reporter, you want to be covering a beat that is like high volatility, right? Because journalism, you only really care about the really big stories. And I saw in crypto, there were all of these like people becoming overnight billionaires and then it all blowing up. And that was kind of, I thought, where the best stories were. And how about you, Nick? Yeah, I did a, a very long stretch at Bloomberg covering the markets and sort of uh, the business and structure of markets and and some other other things. And as reporter, editor, manager, um, and crypto was one of the areas that that I was involved in fairly early, not not a big deep way, but before I left Bloomberg, I looked and I, my first story that I edited was in 2014 when 
one of my reporters had just noticed talking to his people in the derivative space, he was hearing about blockchains and Bitcoin, this new newfangled thing. And so, you know, as part of his his job covering the structure of markets, he was starting to write about. And so I was his primary editor. And so I got into it. So, you know, I got a taste of it. It was very interesting, right? Very sort of how you think about how to rebuild a, a, a financial ecosystem or an ecosystem from the ground up and using this new thing called a blockchain. It was, you know, it's interesting. And then this this great opportunity to Coindesk came up to come over as in a senior position. I, I thought that sounded pretty cool. And, you know, and I viewed crypto kind of similarly to Tracy, where it's like all these big, weird, interesting stories I found really alluring. Like, you know, frankly, a Writing a profile of a guy named Aaron Lammer um, was kind of a fun, a fun, <laughs> a fun introduction to the weirdness of crypto. You get some of the blame for me uh, enjoying crypto uh, as much as I do, and yeah, came over last year. I should have said at the top. Full disclosure: Nick has written a profile of me before uh, about eighteen months ago. I'll link to it in the show notes. Thank you, Nick. I've always appreciated it. Um, in terms of this story, which you know has these elements like these self-printed FTT tokens and this idea of sort of a Caribbean offshore shadow bank operating, like how did you make this understandable for a wider audience? Like maybe not just the CoinDesk audience, but like as you were asked to tell the story to broader and broader circles of people. What are your strategies for making a non-crypto audience understand what's happening in crypto? Oh gosh, um, I, I feel like there there's really just like two groups of people in crypto. You either end up getting really into it, and you're on Twitter all the time and following what's happening. You know what the newest JPEG craze is, and then there are people who just like think crypto is a fraud, and they're <laughs> never going to touch it with a ten foot pole. <laughs> um, so with FTX in particular, I do think that maybe we could have done an even better job because I think, you know, some people still don't understand the nuances and how the balance sheet ended up bringing about this bankruptcy because there's like three or four intermediate steps in between. But I, I do think that a lot of our readers are very financially savvy. There is a big cohort of people that got into crypto just through traditional finance. You know, they bought stocks and now they bought crypto. And I just see a lot of parallel between covering the two. So if you could kind of translate crypto in a way that is like analogous to like covering traditional finance, instead of say like a stock, it's like a token, but like all of the other metrics are kind of the same. And so once people kind of be like, oh, okay, like crypto is just another asset, then it kind of clicks for them. You know, like all of the other functions are kind of the same, like collateral works in the same way. And if you understand traditional financial markets, there's it's very easily translatable to crypto. And I would be in remiss if I didn't mention that the story is still completely ongoing. There's been breaking news in the Sam Bankman-Fried trial over the last couple of weeks. Tell me about what is still sort of unknown in this story or is still to come down the road from here. Yeah. One thing about this whole story is just how far reaching Sam Bankman freed, um, like how much influence he had over, over pre-disparate things. Um, so there is like the political contributions. And now I think there was recent news that he was 
charged with bribing a foreign government. And so now you have like China involved. And also there is the whole bankruptcy that's going on, you know, like how will people get paid? There's assets that are going up for sale. You know, every couple of weeks or so, the DOJ will say that another co-conspirator has pled guilty and, and will testify against SBF. So it's, it'll also be interesting to see who else is potentially going to jail. So all of these are kind of loose threads that some of these are, are going to take years to resolve. So it's definitely, you know, it's going to be, you know, it'll keep people busy for, for the next five to 10 years, I think. It's going to make some lawyers very wealthy, undoubtedly. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to my guests, Tracy Wong and Nick Baker from Coindesk. Also, thanks to Ian Allison from Coindesk. Thanks to all of the winners and the people who put on the George Polk Awards. Thanks to my co-hosts, Matt Slinsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Jackie Sajika, who edited this episode. We will have another episode with another George Polk Award winner tomorrow.